Welcome to Leading to Sales. My name is Brett Williams and I am your host as I am every week. And I am so excited about today's episode. I have probably told more people about today's episode than I have almost any other episode I've had uh, because I am very honored to have Mr. James Rosebush here with me. And James really specializes in helping people break down the barriers of public speaking but what the reason that I'm so excited, because you can find public speaking coaches, quite frankly, a dime a dozen online. Um, but the reason I'm so excited is because James didn't wake up one morning and decide to start a public speaking business. Um, James has been trained by the likes of Dale Carnegie um, and my personal favorite, the great communicator, Ronald Reagan. He has written best-selling books such as The True, True Reagan, not The True Reagan, but True Reagan, and then his most recent best-selling book that we're going to be talking about today, Winning Your Audience, Deliver a Message with the Confidence of a President. So we're going to talk about these books today. We're going to talk about the power of how you can start winning your audience, and we'll do that right after this. Welcome to the Leading to Sales podcast. Every week, we're bringing you leadership, sales, and marketing strategies to help you move your business forward. Here's our host, internationally known sales and marketing leader, Brett Williams. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you so much for joining us. Brett, what a great honor to be on your show. I am a big fan of yours and uh, thrilled that you asked me to be on today. Hey, the, the honor is truly all mine. And I want to go ahead and make sure I get some quick housekeeping out of the way. We are talking a lot today from your book, Winning Your Audience, Deliver a Message with the Confidence of a President. And so if, if you're on here right now and you, the reality is we're all in the public speaking world now. We're in this virtual world. And if you're not public speaking in one way or another, you've just not hung out long enough. <laughs> and so if you want to make sure that you pick up your copy of Winning Your Audience, go to startwinningyouraudience.com. That will point you directly to Amazon where you can pick up your hardcover. So just make sure that you get that because in reading through some of this already, and I have not finished it because frankly, I'm taking your advice at the beginning of the book, James, and I am dissecting this book and applying it piece by piece into my own business and my own strategies that I'm using. And it's just so full, <laughs> for lack of a better term, of so many things that I'm like, oh, I could work on that and I could work on that. So, but in going through this, I love the way that frankly, you're taking your own medicine with this book um, because you are winning me page by page. And that's, I'm not saying that, you know, to make you feel good about yourself. I'm being as genuine as I can while you're doing this. So before we get rolling into everything, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself, some of your background. You've got some very interesting background that led you to now equipping people to speak. Well, I'm happy to do that, Brett, but I want to give you a shout out for really finding this book as I intended it to be, which is more of a guidebook. I call it like a mountain guidebook. So you can tear out pages. There are lists of things to do, uh, ranging from the tone of your voice to what you're wearing, to how you should shave or how you should put on <laughs> makeup. Or you know, I, I don't really leave anything untold because I find that people they might pick up some tips about how to destroy fear, which is certainly in the book. And I talk about how Dr. Martin Luther King he gave sermons about fear and how to get rid of fear. You know, he said he had a famous little saying and he said, um, it, it was as a man of faith and he used faith, which many people do, of course, to get rid of fear. And he said, uh, fear knocked on the door. 
but faith was home and no one answered. Yes. And I'll never forget that. I love that. So there are a lot of different ways to get rid of fear. Do you know, Brett, by the way, that 75% of all people are afraid of public speaking? And you know, we're going to talk about public speaking today, but it doesn't mean necessarily giving a speech to thousands of people uh, like Ronald Reagan did. He thought, you know, when he was in college, he maybe he'd become a preacher. And I would say if he had gone on to divinity school, which he was going to do with it, follow his couple of his classmates, I think he would have been perhaps a minister to thousands at the most, but yeah. he became a preacher to millions. And that was really a good fit for him. And he was able to go around the world world and talk about the importance of protecting freedom and individual liberties. And that was his, you might say his homily or his message that he said over and over and over again, you know, a lot of the media, they would tire. They said, does he have to say the same thing over and over again? Well, this is one key thing we talk about out of a couple hundred in the book, the repetition yes. is important because people don't, you know, they don't always catch it the first time and repetition of key points and things you want to have remembered is a good strategy to say it over and over again. And again, Reagan was criticized for doing that as perhaps being simple-minded or doesn't he have anything else to say? He knew he was smart enough to know that to repeat his message, uh, which really resonates today still, yes. uh, is is a critically important thing to do. It so is. And you know, it's funny that it always makes me think of when I think of the way that Reagan spoke and, and in my opinion, he taught, he taught a nation um, how to return to a lot of amazing principles. But the way that he spoke is it reminds me of the old Steve Jobs. I say it's, it's old, it's probably 10 years old. The Steve Jobs quote of simple can be harder than complex because mm -hmm. it takes work to keep your thinking clean. And you know what Reagan did and, and what you teach people through this book. And what I love is this is not, a, hey, you've been speaking for 20 years book. This is the ground floor, if you will, you're starting with where you're at and it could be anywhere in the spectrum and you're going to walk away, at least so far from what I've gotten into this book, you're going to walk away with a lot of really practical and strategic steps. But the thing that I saw more than anything was the power of that simplicity and repetition is what makes people internalize it. And you talk a lot about um, in the book about storytelling, but then you one of the key things that you love, and I love this this mental illustration that you gave me. It was I'd never seen it done like this before. But you talk about building the bridge to your audience, and I've heard that over and over and over. You've got to bridge the gap to your audience. You've got to bridge the gap to your audience. But then you actually separate the second step of that. Of yes, you've got to build the bridge to your audience, but then you have to cross the bridge. Mm. So, and so, yeah, talk to us just a little mm -hmm. bit about that, you know, because mm -hmm. we all have different audiences that we're working to approach. Okay. So this is critical to know whether you're talking, you know, and I have to say, Brett, public speaking can be talking to your kids and telling them why they need to go to bed at night or <laughs> why they need to eat their dinner. We're not, again, we're not necessarily talking about a speech to a million people. Also, right. I have to just parenthetically insert in here that we're in a communications crisis. Yes. We have we see three out of every five CEOs being fired uh, within you know a, a limited period of time because they can't talk to their yes. stakeholders, their shareholders, their customers. You look at the CEO of Boeing, you know, after those crashes 
uh, the, the Max Jet. He couldn't really communicate with people, yet there's so many around the world were suffering over this. He couldn't, yeah. he couldn't meet that. The head of General Electric, people who, and, and a lot of smaller companies, they can't really empathize, which is a critical building block in that bridge we'll talk about. So we've got a crisis on our hands. Only 23% of all business schools require public speaking. To me, it's more important to do that than to take an accounting class. I mean, yeah. you can always learn accounting or you can go out and hire an accountant. You can, you don't always have someone that you can go out to hire to speak for you when it's really crunch time again with your kids, or if you're a leader in your a part of your homeowners association or whether you're speaking to a, a local civic group or whether you're out there on the road representing a fortune 500 company, you must learn how to speak, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or one to a hundred thousand, you've got to learn this. And we're really in the middle of a crisis. Now you asked me to, to say a word about how you build your bridge before when you're contemplating building your bridge, which is really empathy, right? People yes. can feel whether you want to be there. So, so many times, you know, we'll be sitting in an audience and we'll go, you know, there's a speaker and we're like, you know, I don't think she wants to be here. I, I think she's, she's kind of irritated with the fact that she's got to give this speech or she's afraid or she's nervous or he's afraid or he's nervous. So the first thing you have to conquer is this. Now follow this. You're on a stage and the stage could simply be in a, in a room on a zoom call. By the way, it doesn't have to be physical. There is a stage behind you. There's a wall behind you, a wall left and a wall right. What is the wall in front of you? The wall in front of you is your audience. Yeah. That is the biggest wall you have to overcome. So if you're, let's say you're an actor on a stage, you realize that when you come out on stage, you've got these three walls behind you, but your biggest wall to encounter and to tear down is the audience. But think about this for a minute. So let's say you go to a movie or you go to a play or even a school play or something like that. You know, I would say probably 80% of the people don't want to be there. They think they pay too much for their seats. <laughs> a lot, right? Right? It's expensive, right? Yeah. So if they pay too much for their seats. They'd rather be at a ball game. They, they want to be anywhere but there, but their spouse or their boyfriend or their girlfriend made them go. This, I'm, I'm serious. There are all oh, yeah. kinds of things going through people's minds, even if they, if they put, the, put the whole evening together and said, okay, let's go to this play. These things all enter into an effect how the talk, the words, the communication, the essential information is going to be received. Now, that's the first thing that you must confront. You must know that you have to tear down the fourth wall. Now, how does an actor, a really good actor do that? The good actor knows that within 30 seconds, the audience is going to decide whether they're happy that they've come there or not. That's why you always start with a story. And you may, you may let's say you're giving a speech, you may start with uh, like I did today. Oh, Brett, you know, great to be with you. I'm a big fan. Now, let me tell you a story. Yeah. Okay. So typically that is the way I would begin and the way I would coach my clients to begin. And you know, Brett, a lot of people say to me, oh, well, you know, you've had an interesting life. You had a lot, you have a lot of stories to tell. I, I have what, you know, I'm just, I'm just an ordinary person. I don't have any stories to tell. Oh yes, you do. Okay. Yeah. Now let's think back to an example of a very homely story that tells a lifelong lesson that my parents told me 
when I lied one day, they and they copied this story. They took me into the bathroom and they said, spread out the two toothpaste on on the counter. And I thought, what am I doing? You know, spread, you know, getting, you know, okay, spread out the toothpaste. Then they said, now try to put it back in the tube. Yeah. I never ever forgot that. If I lie, if I tell a lie, you can never put it back. It always okay. is always out there. And that's something that's very costly to you. Now that is a very simple story that has nothing to do with the fact that yes, I've had a very interesting life of spending time with Queen Elizabeth and I've written about it and all that kind of stuff. Doesn't matter Then perhaps the simpler the story and the more homemade the story, the more yeah. the audience will respond to it. Why? Because you're showing vulnerability. Yeah. You're not, you're not telling a story about yourself in a way that might even develop more opposition in the mind of the audience. And remember this, Brett, communication is at least 65% nonverbal. Now, what do I mean by that? In, in a room, even in a Zoom room, we're actually all sharing the same consciousness. And if you realize that, it is not me going to you or you coming to me. It's us together. Yeah. And I don't know uh, if you remember, you're way too young to remember this, but the Carol Burnett show, have you ever, you ever heard of the Carol Burnett show? So I've she's a it. great comedian and look it up on, on uh, YouTube. It's absolutely incredible. So Carol Burnett was probably the most successful comedian on, on TV and her, her uh, TV show lasted, you know, probably like 10 years. Right. So this is what she did after, at the end of every show, she sang a song, which was her brand. Yeah. And the song was, it's been so nice to be together. Now, interesting. Okay. I watched Carol Burnett. I still watch Carol Burnett reruns, but I'm not in a room with her. Yeah. Right. Right. And yet she says to me, it's been so nice to be together. Now, what is the point? The point is I want to watch more of her shows. Yes. Right. Why? Because I feel that she recognizes and values her audience. And if an audience doesn't feel valued and if they don't feel that they're getting and that they're getting value out of what's being communicated, they, they won't listen, they'll shut off, they'll get up and leave. Or if you're on TV, they won't dial in to your, you know, to your, they won't go on to your show again. So I, I'll never forget that, that Carol Burnett always said, it's been so nice to be together. It made me feel like I was there at the, the live performance of her comedy show, even though I wasn't. So this is Absolutely. some, these are some simple things to remember. Then that bridge, okay? So we start with a story, bang. Bang, bang, right out of the gate. It's a story, okay? So I'll very often talk about when I was 20 years old and at my first job and I heard automatic machine gun fire coming through the plate glass door of the office where I was working. I dove under my desk, I grabbed my phone. I had no idea whether I was gonna survive or not. And after five hours, we were led down the fire escape by the local SWAT team and we were kept safe. But what that did for me in terms of creating my career that ultimately led to my working in the White House was very dramatic. So if you tell a story like that, you're gonna grab your audience and that's a true story. Now, to go back to that point again, that people will say, oh, but I've never had 
you know, been been taken captive by uh, six ski mask, uh, you know, gunmen. Well, that is a rare occurrence. I agree. If you don't have a story to tell about yourself and dig deeply because you do, but if you think you don't read an obituary, read a review of a book. This weekend, I read a review of a book that's been published about Winston Churchill and his son, Randolph. And there were some very interesting re new revealing kind of perspectives on that relationship and why it really mattered. You might pop out a story about that book, something that you read. It's still a story that's going to capture the interest of your audience. Now what you're doing, you're tearing down that wall of resistance, right? You're breaking through that by telling a story. Could be, it could be uh, a story that's telling a joke on yourself. Could be a story about something you've read. Could be an obituary you've read. Could be something that your kid said to you, you know, the night before or the morning when you went off to work or whatever. Any of those things, that is what tears down the wall. Then the next thing is building the bridge, okay? And building the bridge is making the audience know that you're happy to be there and you have something important to share. That's all you have to do. Then you build the bridge. Now, I'm so happy to be here today and I've got a really important thing I wanna share with you. Before we do that, I wanna tell you a little story. See what I mean? Where I'm going? Now that's gonna grab your audience. So then, now then you say, at the, at the end of the story, you say, now let's go back to four things that I want you to leave with here today. And that's my next, in, in my list of things to do, is to say four things or three things, right. never more than five. So why do you do that? You want to hang, this is a bit of Dale Carnegie, you wanna hang, Point. Let, let's take, let's say it's three points. I want to, to make this the most valuable 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour that you could ever have today. And I want you to leave here with three critical points that I think will help you to do your job in the future or will help you get along better with your neighbor or what, you know, whatever it is. So let's start off. Here's point number one. So you're going right into it. What are you doing? You're crossing that bridge. Yeah. Bang, 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 bang. You're crossing the bridge. Okay. And what, what are you doing? You're giving to the audience. I've got three things that I want to give you. And you'll see masters of, you know, Tony Robbins, people, people like this who are, who are you know, massive icons of public speaking, right? That's exactly what they do. Yeah. They're storytellers. And then they say, okay, don't leave here today without two things in your mind. If you don't remember anything about what I've shared with you today, remember this and then go home and apply this or go to work and apply this. Okay. Yeah. So, and then at the end and in this book, uh, I don't, you probably haven't gotten to it yet, but I give the reader what's called the architecture of a great speech. And this is the way Reagan did it. Okay. Yeah. And a couple of elements there, I, I think are important. Reagan never, talked about himself. There are other reasons for that, but he never talked about himself. So instead of doing that, he would give quotes or inspiring things. Like I just gave that little thing about Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah. That's what's going to re resonate with people. It's not going to be, Oh, Jim Rosebush told you to, you know, faith answers the door and fear wasn't there. No, it's because I used and invoked someone 
who's so widely respected and revered and known basically to, to anyone who's been alive and breathing you know, over, <laughs> over the past, you know, few, you know, year, number of years, decades. So it isn't me. Reagan never said, look, I'm telling you that you need to be more philanthropic or you, you know, or no, it, Reagan wasn't, he didn't believe in, in telling people what he thought. He wanted them to hear what other people thought. People who were more, uh, perhaps more broadly accepted historical figures. And by the way, he was not partisan about this. You know, he would use John F. Kennedy. He was a Republican, obviously. He would use John F. Kennedy. He would use Franklin Roosevelt. And, and he did it by design because he wanted people to come together and not fight what, what he was saying. I'm going to stop in one second. But I think using that, uh, he would often start with a story. Then he would use a historic quote. Then he would tell you, you know, his main points. And then he would end with two things. He would use another inspiring quote of some kind that was related to his subject. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, let's say, let's take the ash heap of history, which was one of his most famous speeches, or let's take the speech that he gave when the challenger space shuttle went down. Okay. He invoked that incredibly inspiring uh, poem about uh, the, the airman who wrote this in World War II about flying, it's called high flight. And it's flying into the, the beautiful clouds and feeling as if you're touching the face of God. I mean, it's just a, it, it's just a spectacular poem. Then he never ended any speech without asking the audience to go do something. So you end it, your, your finale is to say, now I hope these things have been helpful and useful to you. Now go out and do it yourself. You can do this and write to me, email me about it and tell me about your successes. Thank you so much. So that is basically, there's more detail to it in the book, but that's the architecture of a great speech. You know what I love is, is what you've just laid out for us is chapter eight in the book. Um, and, and I would venture to guess that a lot of that came from, um, well, so I'll say chapter eight in the book is the perfect trifecta, which is audience content and delivery. Um, and in studying Dale Carnegie and, and, and studying, you know, great speakers and communicators of history, you see that there is that focus in that order, quite frankly. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoy of what I've gotten through so far in the book is that. We often, when we have, or at least for me, when I get that anxiousness about delivering a message or communicating a message, it's typically, I typically am focused on what's the content? Is the content good? Is the content good? Am I going to, am I going to be able to deliver the content good? And oftentimes, at least I've, from what I've experienced with people who aren't as experienced communicators their focus is not on the audience and it's not on how can I make sure that the content can deliver the deliver what I want it to deliver to the audience. Um, if there's any focus on the audience, it's, Oh my God, there's going to be an audience. Um, <laughs> so you know, it, it, it reminds me a lot of Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. And, and many of his courses of, you know, nobody effectively, and this is the Brett Williams paraphrase version of, of people, their people's number one favorite subject to talk about is themselves. And if you come on to the stage or the, or to this meeting or whatever and focus on them, then you're already putting yourself at a um, 
at an advantage. Yes, that's absolutely true. Oh, you know, as you were talking about, I have to tell you about the scariest audiences that I've ever had. <laughs> uh, they're, they're not an audience of intellectuals necessarily. It's high schoolers. Oh my gosh. When I have been asked to speak, uh, and I, I can remember one audience in particular, we were in a major metropolitan, you know, uh, high school that has thousands of kids, right? And uh, I think probably you get the feeling that it's the last place they want to be. I mean, they are sprawled out over there. They're on their phones. They're sprawled out over their chairs. They're asleep. They're like, <laughs> you know, I, why am I here? This is the last thing. So I tell you, uh, one, I remember on one occasion, I had to abandon what, what I wanted to share with him. And I just started talking and telling stories about basically myself when I was their age. And I, I think that there, I, I can't say that they all got up and, you know, started saying, <laughs> yay, yay, right? But, you know, I'll tell you an interesting thing that happened. So after I thought I was, I left that, I, I left the stage and I was like, oh man, I bombed. That, that was just terrible. <laughs> and I felt you know, and here I'm, I've, I've given thousands of speeches in my life and, but I felt totally dejected, right? By a high group of high school, <laughs> there were several thousand there. And so I walked off the stage and they were all headed out, you know, getting out of there as fast as they could. They were going to the cafeteria or football field or going home or whatever, you know, and, but an interesting thing happened. So I left the stage and I kind of went down in the front, you know, and my hosts were the committee that, you know, that I thought, oh boy, they're never going to invite me again. Uh, but they were surrounding me. And all of a sudden, a substantial group of kids came over to me and they said, oh, Mr. Rosebush, you said exactly what I needed. That was so inspiring. I want, and, and they were not paid to do it, by the way. <laughs> but, they came around me and I thought to myself, wow, this means the world to me that even though you think, now follow this, even though you think you haven't reached anyone in the audience, if, and there's a little quote I, I often, I shared with Nancy Reagan. She was a very uh, fearful public speaker. And I would say, share this quote with her. Whenever the heart speaks, no matter how simple the words, they're always acceptable to those who have hearts. Wow. No matter how simple the words, they're always acceptable to those who have hearts. Now, those kids, you might look at them and say, oh, no, these kids don't have hearts at all. <laughs> well, of course, every human being has a heart, right? So yeah. I was perhaps because I was so uh, right while I was standing there and a million thoughts go through your mind, by the way, as you're a speaker up there, I thought I'm a complete failure here. And yet I wanted to share with them things that I thought could be helpful to them. And I, I, I'm happy to say that I think enough of them got it, that those were the core, you know, maybe there was a hundred out of thousands. Uh, it's not a very good average, but they came over to express their appreciation for what I said in such a meaningful and real way that I thought, okay, I reached at least a portion 
of my audience. Yeah. So it's, you know, I think any speaker stands out there and you do see this a lot. I used to coach speakers to uh, take action if they saw people on their phones, but you know what? Someone smarter than I came up to me and I was saying like, well, all these people were on their phones and it was just, you know, it's, it's unnerving when you sit there and someone's on their phone. But today, uh, it goes like this. People may be on their phones actually taking notes. Yeah. So that was a great day when that guy told me that. He said, no, I think you have to realize that probably they were on their phones taking notes. I'm like, oh, oh no, I'll buy that. that, that is, <laughs> you know, that's not totally true. But I think it's a good attitude or a precept to accept in your mind because you do not want to be cluttered or, or you don't want to be distracted from your main message when you're up there. Now I'm going to tell you, you have to deal with that because yeah. when you're up, when you're speaking or when you're reciting and I coach a lot of people who are like ministers, right? Uh, you can think, Oh, you know, I'm going to be inspired with my subject. You know, I'm reading the Bible or I'm reading Shakespeare, you know, something like that. I'm telling you, you can be, you can be saying the Lord's prayer and you're going to be thinking, Oh, uh, did I turn off the car? I think the car is probably still running. Uh, did I pick up my shirts from the laundry? Did I, you know, a million thoughts are going to go through your mind because you can actually do that. You can yeah. actually think on a, like about four or five different tracks at once. Yeah. Now you want, this is what you do when you feel that you're distracted, like, Oh, did I turn the oven off? You know, is my house burning down, you know, when I left, you know, or whatever, when I left the house or, you know, did I lock the office when I left? You just speak to yourself and you say, I know what you are. I'm not interested in you right now. I'm focused on my message and it'll go away. But those distracting thoughts will come in to try to pull you away from focusing on your audience. It's a natural occurrence. And, and I think a lot of these things, that's why I wrote this book. And that's why I love coaching people because when they learn just a little bit of these laws, it takes the fear away because when they first they're up there and they get this thought, you know, Oh, Oh my gosh, did, did I comb my hair? Did I, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> when you know that that is going to happen, it's a natural occurrence. Some, yeah. Somehow it takes the, it takes the power out of it. Yeah. I love that. And that's, I think it's, it's so powerful when you, when you have the opportunity to be coached by someone like yourself to get that purview into, Hey, this is what, this is what's going to happen. And then when those things start to happen, your preparation makes all the difference. Um, I one, one of the questions that I, I was thinking of as I was reading through the book and I was just thinking about, as he is called the great communicator, president Reagan, I was wondering, you know, obviously, and you highlight this in the book that speaking and, and really communicating is a skill set. Um, thankfully, it is not something that we're just inherently born with and a talent that we come out of the womb with a microphone and and a uh, podium in our hand. And you talk about or when I'm thinking about that in relation to President Reagan, he was a classically trained actor. Um, at least earlier in his career, from some of the things that I've seen of reruns, I, I was not blessed to see them live, um, or uh, I guess originally, but he did a good bit of acting and it was more in like of a classical sense. How much of a part do you feel that that played in his ability to be such such an effective communicator? 
You know, the biggest contributor to his being called a great communicator, he had something to say. Mm. So it really starts with our content. You have to have something to say and you have to feel that it's vital. So let's look at Ronald Reagan for a minute. So I had a great opportunity of speaking at his college, Eureka College in Illinois, in rural Illinois, uh, you know, small, very historic college. Abraham Lincoln spoke there. And, you know, Reagan always, uh, you know, did, was teasing people about, you know, and, and uh, I, I know Lincoln said this and that, well, people would say, how do you know that? And, well, because I met Lincoln, you know, so he, about his age, you know, he would joke <laughs> about that. But, uh, uh, so I go to Eureka College to give a speech. I think I gave two speeches, two speeches there. And I saw the stage in the student center. It was actually called a chapel, but it was like an old building with a wooden floor. And Reagan, when he was uh, a junior in college, he led a revolt of students. You wouldn't think Reagan would ever be like that way, right? So the president of the college was this was after the depression and he had cut courses that were very popular for because of budget budget constraints and the students didn't like him and they campaigned to get rid of him and reagan was the head of the campaign <laughs> and so uh he said that the most important speech he ever gave in his life was that one it was the first speech he ever gave and he said i'll never forget the applause and the cheers I got from what I was saying. Okay, now go back to what we talked a few minutes ago. He connected with his audience and he was getting a response. Okay, so he'd build a bridge to them. Now what happened as a result of that speech, they did succeed and the president of the college was fired because of the student student action. Sounds like something from the 60s or you know, maybe <laughs> today, right? So Reagan thought, that from that experience, and he was a thespian, he, he was, he took drama courses in college, but follow this. So he gets out of college, he decides not to go to divinity school, and he gets this job basically as a fluke to be a uh, radio broadcaster for the Chicago Cubs games, right? Yep. But very few people know this. Reagan was not, at that time, the broadcasters were not even in the field. They weren't in, they didn't have those boxes, you know, where the press is, at, uh -huh. like at Wrigley Field. They, they didn't have that. He was 100 miles away in a radio studio, and he was being telegraphed. It would be, no one knows what telegraph is today. It'd be like <laughs> texting, okay? It's like if I texted Brett and I said, oh, you know, the Cubs are up five and there was just a home, you know, blah, 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 like that. So he's getting all this texted. He had to create the plays and what was going on. And in the end, he became uh, a part of a small group of the most highly regarded sports broadcasters. Why? Because he created what? A story. Yeah. Okay. So he created a story where there wasn't really a story. There was like, okay, here's what's happened, you know, top of the fourth, you know, blah, blah. Here, here are the facts. Yeah. He didn't even see it. Brett, he didn't even see the game. He wasn't even, he had to make it up. Okay. Now later the, of course, then they did bring broadcasters in, into uh, the, the stadiums. They were, they were, uh, you know, in person, but this is Reagan learned the power of telling a story. 
Now on Hollywood back lots, met where I, I spent time during my years of working for the Reagans, uh, people would say, well, Reagan wasn't all that well liked on the back lots because he loved to tell too many stories. <laughs> so I think by the time he got to the White House, he had tempered that. He still loved telling stories and he liked hearing stories. So uh, every morning at the door of the Oval Office, there would be a line of people. What were they doing? It wasn't that they had a, you know, a briefing or something like that. Yes, of course, the people did. But there was a there was a line as soon as Reagan, they knew Secret Service said, OK, Rawhide is on his way. People would line up because they want to tell him a story that would make him laugh and a story that he could repeat. See, so he was. And then we had uh, Mort Saul, who was a great uh, comedic writer would call Nancy Reagan about once a week with new stories. So Reagan was getting new stories and new material all the time. And, and he loved that. And of course, also Reagan was, uh, uh, in addition to acting in movies, he had a floor show in Las Vegas. Uh, in his days when he wasn't making enough money in films, he went to Las Vegas and he obviously stand up. You have to, yeah, that's the hardest job is a stand up to entertain people really. Yeah. But, I would say, okay, fine. He was an actor, he was trained, but he was successful as a great communicator because of his message and because he believed in it. Follow that, Brett. He didn't just mouth some words from you know a political platform. He believed in it so much and he loved America so much. And he believed, you say, well, why did he keep talking about freedom all right freedom 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 okay we're tired of hearing about you know free. because he believed that god made man free and that you had inalienable rights and that these were god-given rights yeah. and he believed that everyone in the world should be able to live under freedom rather than totalitarianism or communism or any of the other isms and his fight was really for the individual man. And yeah. you know what? Doesn't that go back to if your audience feels you're working for them? He was really working for what we might call the working man and woman, or you know, he, he was he was there for the you know the everyday person who deserves to live in freedom. And where wherever we would go around the world, I remember going to China, going out into the countryside to visit with he wanted to visit with farmers on a collectivist farm. And even there, you know, he, he couldn't resist, you know, well, well, what, what are you growing here? Well, we're growing beets. Well, um, you know, do you, do you take your beets to market? Do you get to say, oh no, no, they're given to the government and then the government sells them. So, uh, you know, he would talk to them about that. Well, he felt in his heart that if people could only get a glimpse of what it was like to be free. Yeah. I had this extraordinary experience um, of, and stop me if we're running up against time, but if I have another second, I'll tell you this story that I was giving a speech one time in a big hotel ballroom in New York. And afterwards, this woman comes, like she's like screaming, you know, she's coming running toward me. And I thought, oh, I better get out of here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is like those high schoolers, you know, that, 
Okay, well, I thought this woman, like, she was probably nuts or something. So I went into the green room there, the you know holding room. Uh, she and she followed me in there, and she had tears streaming down her eyes. And she said, "I have to talk to you. I have to talk to you." I said, "Well, about what?" And she said, "Well, how you you talked about Reagan in your speech." She said, "Ronald Reagan saved my life." And I said, "Well." Okay, tell me this story. And I actually retold this story in an article that I wrote for the Wall Street Journal. It's called Reagan's Other Woman. And she told me this story. She was a born in the Soviet Union and she was a, a student at Moscow University. And she received or somehow got a hold of American literature magazines, maybe that, I don't know, uh, USIA put out or something like that. And she would fall asleep every night dreaming of America. And she said, I actually envisioned America as paradise. And she said, and, and she was serious. And she said, I went to bed every night holding on to those magazines, thinking if I could only escape and go to America, I would be in paradise. No, Americans take this for granted. They don't know this is how people think. So she's again, tears streaming down her eyes, right? She said, she said, I went, she went to Moscow University. She got a PhD in applied economics. Wow. So at one point in uh, 1980, let's see, 19, I think it was 1986. Yes, we Reagan brokered a deal where a certain number of, of Soviet uh, Jews were allowed to immigrate and with with Gorbachev. And it wasn't many, but my friend was selected. Wow. She comes to New York. She gets it because she's so smart. She gets a job at I think it was Goldman Sachs. And in her first year, she makes a million dollars. Wow. And she, she said the funny thing about it, she was speaking, you know, a bit broken. She said, you know, she was obviously very smart and very good at her job, but she said she got to America and she went out and bought a car or she got a car with her first, you know, paycheck or something like that. And she said, the thing is, I didn't know you had to get a driver's license before you got a car. <laughs> so she said, I was just driving all around, you know, in this car without a driver's license. But it's uh, stories like that that really resonate uh, with me about the messages that Ronald Reagan sent. And, you know, the mayor of Moscow said, uh, because Reagan was so criticized, you know, at the time he called the Soviet Union the evil empire. But yeah. do you know what the, the head of security for Moscow said? What's that? It was good that he communicated that because it made us look at ourselves and reassess. Wow. And we said to ourselves, yeah, we are the evil empire because we're not providing freedom for Soviet citizens. That's what he said. And it was in recorded testimony. You can find that it was actually record or reported in the Washington and the Washington post. Wow. That's incredible. It's, I mean, it really just ties back to the effectiveness mm -hmm. of, um, or the power of effective communication. There you go. Um, 
So again, I mean, you've heard this, this and many other stories in James's books, winning your audience, deliver a message with the confidence of the president. This is, again, this is not just for, as he said, this is not just if you're delivering an, a message to millions or even thousands. This is for all of us who are, in my opinion, living in the digital age of today. We're all delivering a message. The question is, are we winning our audience with it? So to get the copy of that book, go to startwinningyouraudience.com. That will take you directly to Amazon where you can go ahead and pick up your copy of James's book. And I would encourage you to do it like I'm doing it. This book is getting notated. It's getting highlighted. It's probably going to look like my three and a half year old's coloring book by the time it's done with, because <laughs> I feel like I've already been through about two highlighters just in the, the sections that I've used. So thank you again for coming on, James. If you don't mind, just take a couple of quick minutes here and tell people, you know, you've talked about how you enjoy coaching people and you, and you enjoy helping people along this journey. Tell people how they can interact with you and what's the, what are some of the best ways that they can reach you? Oh, thank you, Brett. You can always reach me at, uh, you see up there, the URL growthstrategy.us. You can also reach me on impactspeakercoach.com. And that will tell you everything about my uh, coaching. I coach le and leadership, the three buckets, leadership, executive coaching, and speaker coaching. And we do this, you know, I, I do uh, speech writing as well, but I do this for all kinds of people from, I will tell you, uh, I had a woman who called me on a, I think like a Sunday morning, maybe Sunday, maybe it's Saturday morning. And she said, oh my gosh, I, I, I heard about you. I have to be on TV on Monday because they want me to talk about this startup company that I have, which is like uh, healthy food for kids. And she said, I, I don't, I have no idea what to do. I said, okay, are you free tomorrow? That was Sunday. <laughs> I had her come to my office and we did everything, what she should say, what she should wear, how she, you know, and, and so that's sort of a, a, you know, a quick instance of something like this, but then I work with corporate CEOs. I work with people at all levels. I work with parents and how to communicate better with their kids. So uh, everyone needs to learn how to communicate and have an impact by by what they're saying. So you'll find on this site uh, what other people are saying about this coaching, and uh, many of them say, "You've changed my life." And it isn't because I changed their life; it's because what they've learned about themselves. Be learning to become a great speaker is learning to know yourself better. Wow, that's. If you don't, if you don't take anything else away, right there you go. Learning to become a great speaker is learning to get to know yourself better. Um, so again, for anybody who's tuning in after the fact, if you're tuning in uh, via podcast, we'll make sure that these links are in the show notes on our website. Um, but again, growthstrategy.us or impactspeaker. Excuse me, impactspeakercoach.com um, are how we can re how you can reach out to James and then to pick up a, your copy of his book. Go to, again, startwinningyouraudience.com, start and that will take you directly to Amazon. James, if you'll hang out, hang out for just a moment, I'll go ahead and close this out. And again, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and helping us learn some of this process. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it, Brett. Absolutely. So I wish we had another hour to, to discuss with James. I would have loved to have gotten even more stories and, um, and insight about President Reagan um, and his amazing ability to communicate. But we are coming up against time here. And so I want to fir firstly close out by saying thank you. Thank you to the audience, uh, to all of you here in the audience who tune in every single week as we bring you 
speakers, coaches, authors, and experts to help you move yourself and your business forward. With that, we will be live again here on Thursday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be live with Rob Brown, and I'll go into more details about Rob and some of the amazing things that he is doing on Thursday. But with that, I look forward to talking to you then. And until then, I'm just here to keep reminding you, either give value or don't even bother.